Hello, this is Residence 104.4 FM. My name is Matt Hale and I'm from Art Monthly. This is the programme where we discuss some of the writing from the current issue of Art Monthly with the people who wrote the texts. This month, I'm joined by Michael Corris, who has been described by his friends as a disillusioned artist, much more enchanted with literature. He's also a writer and artist and works in a university or various universities and an author of books. I'm also joined by Richard Grayson, who is an artist and writer and a curator. Now, both these texts in the issue, um, one's a polemic by Richard and the other one is a, what we call a feature. Um, I've read them both and they're quite difficult and complicated but very interesting pieces which um, I've grappled with in my, as, a, as a reader, not a, not a writer. And um, there seem to be connections across. I don't want to... Um, talk for you really by trying to sum up what they're about but there is obviously um, connections between them which are to do with economics and the position of the artist in relation to survival um, I, I, it made me think of um, the current situation um, both with the credit crunch occurring as it's called and also in Britain we have at the moment these um, MPs expenses so there's a kind of um, with those, there's a democratic breakdown or people wondering what there's going on when we vote people in and then they kind of um, are found to be possibly milking the system. And then we've also got the collapse of the monetary system. Now, obviously, artists, and you describe people like Damien Hirst, both of you mention him, as artists which who are very tied in with the whole economic um city structure of commodities and, and uh, hedge funding and all this kind of thing. And I, I, so I'm going on too much, and I want, like, what I'd like is you to perhaps, Michael, to start with, pick, pick up on what I'm saying, if you can, and try and describe the situation you set up in your piece at the, from the beginning, if you could. Right. Well, <clears throat> I, would, I would describe what I wrote as a harangue, um, <clears throat> even though it's a feature article. It's, it's, it's quite polemical, like, like Richard's is. Um, but I think what both Richard and I are trying to do, um, not to speak for Richard, but I think the connections are, we're trying to see if there is some sort of interesting connection to be drawn between art and culture and money now that's not obvious, um, that is not terribly straightforward, has a bit of sophistication about it. And um, the artist that you're mentioning, you're talking about Damien Hirst, um, for me, his work exemplifies one particular kind of art market. And one of the things that I learned after I finished writing the piece was that there really needs to be more in-depth research into the various kinds of art economies that exist rather than a fixation with the one that's the most glamorous, the one that's the most visible, and the one that is obviously the most exciting to watch collapse. I mean, that does kind of fulfill certain interesting fantasies perhaps but i think we really need to move beyond that yes yes i mean uh, richard could could you bring in your interest with damien you you mentioned damien in your piece as well well s certainly damien hurst um he's sort of exemplary really uh, he's perhaps one of the few artists of his time who was directly or semi-consciously addressing this idea of sort of hyper hallucinogenic value where the entire thing just becomes some sort of uh, reification of our ideas of galactic value. I mean, sort of the skull piece, you know, is perhaps exemplifies this. But he's, he, he brands himself 
you know you can go out and you can get the dot brand you can get the the cow brand or you can get the skull brand um, he sells himself or is sold as uh, a person who's bringing in innovative marketing approaches and sort of financial instruments. Uh, he's got that sort of stubbly, boysy, know what I mean, wide boy thing, which actually is part of the was part of the mythology of the new city, certainly within the Anglo-Saxon or, or British world. And as I say in my little rant, um, you know, your average sort of um, dealer uh, sort of during the boom years was about, was about sort of 28, 32, male, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Hearst represents a version of themselves who's making work about culture, seems edgy. This is an important word within um, sort of the, the entire thing. And they've adored it. And in a way, one of the things, I mean, um, Michael was just talking about in a way, trying to move beyond the normal rhetorics and suspects. One of the things that really fascinates me is how contemporary art has come to, and obviously that's a very, very wide field, but as a whole has come to symbolize for, say, UBS or whatever, risk and innovation. It's, you know, and in a way, it's, it doesn't matter what the art's doing. That's the myth that's... that's you, mean, that you mean owning it brings that cachet? Is that what you yeah, mean? Yeah, it's a form of sympathetic magic. Well, this, this has been <clears throat> pretty much the approach that um, first advertising had in the 50s and 60s when they started to talk about creative directors as opposed to simply art directors. Um, it's well established as a trope within the corporate world that uh, art presents an image of creativity that's accessible, that uh, seems to be universal, uh, doesn't seem to be tied to any particular kind of agenda, and therefore is very useful. What, what's interesting about, about Hearst as well, I mean, I don't want to dwell too much on Damien, no. but, but he is um, somebody who presents a wide variety of issues to unpack. His, his various kinds of attachments to a British sensibility, as, as it was trying to be constructed in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, connected as well, coupled with this sort of global reach, um, very much a part of the, the kind of the tensions under which contemporary art has been operating since, since the mid to late 80s. And I mean, I think of somebody like Jeff Koons on the other side of the Atlantic, who exemplified the same kinds of values, who had a variety of trademark products, um, who was interested in presenting himself through the media in a particular way, and whose work was seen almost immediately across the international exhibitions and art fairs, uh, at least at the time in the Western world. There wasn't very much uh, progress towards Asia or the Middle East, or certainly Africa or Latin America. This has all changed. But that, that is where that kind of configures now, and it's very much a more successful version of what HSBC wants to call, you know, the local bank with a global reach and that sort of appeal to the global and the local, which as far as I'm concerned is one of the worst ideas Anthony Giddens ever had, never kind of comes together, but seems to work pretty well in terms of art, keeping right. that tension there. Um, and just as another aside, um, the British entry, the uh, British pavilion, Steve McQueen, a film that was supposedly addressing the problem of nationalism, undercutting that, <clears throat> looking at the Venice Biennale, for example, as, as a great festival of, of national culture and how that would work 
in, in today's world. Well, very, very interesting. Something that Damien Hirst, of course, is now, I think, outside of. Right. You're saying so something way. good was happening <coughs> at Venice. Is that what just well, just something good was happening. I wouldn't say that <laughs> I, I, I thought Steve McQueen's effort was actually as successful but the intention maybe was the intention was interesting, but you got that with a lot of a lot of other right. pavilions, a lot of other right. artists outside of the Giardini yeah. personality. Yeah. I, I had this um, uh, first time in my life I'd ever done it about two or three years ago, because I've only recently started going to either biennales or art fairs. I sort of left it to my more mature years, so I wouldn't get too annoyed. And uh, I went from <laughs> Venice to Basel, and <coughs> on the uh, front page of the uh, art newspaper who uh, at Basel you had this headline Biennale Bounce which I thought was sort of rather fantastic and uh, illuminating because the, the model as was you know in the 60s 70s or whatever was that Biennale world was somehow removed from art fair world yes. that mm. you know Biennale world was the cutting edge of discourse etc despite all the nationalist rhetorics, etc., and that art fair world was something totally different. Commerce, now, yeah, commerce. Now, obviously, what we've seen happening, and this comes back to the economy thing, is the absolute collision. Uh, not only a collision, but it's been a mutual sort of melding. It's like a sort of strange science fiction um, organisms floating into each other. So, yes, this idea of biennale bounce, where suddenly, so you know, uh, an artist who has scored a critical success, it's immediately reflected. A week later. I mean, the bounce is all into the art fair. Yes, and the prices go up. You know, yeah, I, mean, it, I mean, I know it's a simplistic thing, but but the fact that this was so um, yeah. admired. Well, there's a saturation, an understanding of the, the, the way in which things are disseminated and closer connections being drawn mm. uh, because that, that always happens. I mean, the prices will go up because the exposure is there and the mere fact that you're selected gives you a level of esteem. Yeah. Well, I, I'm afraid I may mix up who wrote what, so forgive me. But you, <laughs> you, you do talk about um, the connection between, you know, museums and, and the, the, the acceptance of a museum bringing this, you know, rise of value and, va and value being all tied up, everything sort of being tied up, to, and certain people being part of a value system. I, I certainly was making an, 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 an analogy, I mean, whether it works... Uh, when you look at it closely, I don't know, but it's, it works for me. Yeah. Between the roles of the, the museums and the roles of the um, institutions such as Standard and Poor, who are you know sort of looking at people's you know, the world's economies and saying this is all brilliant, and it's absolutely working five stars, um, and the role that the museums have now ended up in, you know, because they uh, are the people on their boards represent more and more, you know, sort of collectors and this and this that and the other. So there's now this sort of uh, Again, this this interaction, well, and, or, and, and also the way that curators, who are working in authoritizing spaces, uh, will also be working, say, for Swedish shipping millionaires, sort of, or Norwegian shipping millionaires, building their collection. This strikes me as, an, and you know, people used to complain about sort of Bernard Berenson, sort of having a strange sort of collision of, of interest between authoritizing a, a Raphael and selling people Raphaels or whatever. It's not moved on very much since 1890 yeah. or 1910. Well, do, do you think the need for a, a kind of a, a scalar measure, an endorsement of, of the quality of a particular work of art, is, is um, evidence of, of the absolute alienation between art and cultural values, or is, or is it something else? It's a good one, isn't it? Uh, interesting question. Um, it's certainly a, 
certainly a sign of sort of speed, isn't it? I mean, in a way that you know, I mean, nobody is in, in all the structures that the market or marketization has developed. You now buy expertise. You don't have to become an expert. So if you're trying to set up a health system, you get in, in Africa, you get people who've been nominated by the banks, you know, to know about this sort of thing. In fact, so, even, you know, even nation states do it. Um, Singapore has contracted Duke University Medical School to develop their um, their healthcare right. system. So, so the so art world is, is, is now, you know, the collector yeah. now but contracts somebody yeah. to bring the expertise. Um, and that somebody is usually authoritized by the structure seemingly outside, uh, you know, the, 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 the columns of academe. Disinterested in, uh, in theory, but of yeah. course in practice not. Your, your piece, Michael, remember, um, basically you end up well, I've, I've end up, you end up thinking about, there were words like normalisation, I think, of the market. I, I, whether it was just the market, I'm not certain, but it yes. definitely was of the market. And they were kind of, you were coming towards, in, in, in the sort of the last third of your piece, I think, like what to do about what we're kind of describing here is, which we could be described as a problem, I would say. And, and, and I don't know, but one of them was this normalisation of the market. And then there was a problem, but there was then a the problem with that, because the idea of that, you know, Cut out the high competition and the rate and the the, the commodification of the art thing, yeah. and well, then we went yeah. what you left with. Yeah. Well, this th this is coming from from reading Hans Abing, um, yeah. which I think is an interesting book, even even if it, if some of it is flawed in, in terms of my understanding of of art world dynamics um, and the markets that I'm familiar with. But the idea of normalization meant uh, is is really. The, the critique of his initial position, which he himself ad admits um, is, is now redundant, which is that there was something exceptional, exceptional about the art economy, that it wasn't going to be sustaining the same kinds of ups and downs as the regular commodity or service-based economy. Um, and um, I'm not quite sure what the evidence of that ever came from, other than the idea that art is very valuable and therefore things like blue chip old masters will retain a value while other commodities would fall precipitously. But over the years, he's seen that that is not the case at all, and that's what he calls the normalization of the art economy. Um, the other issue that he, he introduces is that at various points in the economic cycle, governments and the uh, ac academies, uh, academia, step in <clears throat> and provide support for art. Um, we see this with, with um, city councils supporting arts projects, with arts councils supporting arts projects. And that this then begins to generate another class of artists who are totally dependent on the public purse. Yeah. And of course, what he says is, is going to be the downside of that is that that's going to contract the availability. As the market falls down and the public sector becomes one of the only other places that you can go if you want to practice as an artist and sustain yourself, that's going to become more selective as well, so that eventually we'll have fewer and fewer artists. It'll become more and more professionalized and, and specific. Um, I sort of got interested in that because um, back in the 70s, people started talking to themselves as cultural workers and looking at the issue of what they call the proletarianization of culture, which was the, the way in which the state starts to support art financially. And the first, the beginnings of the arguments that are now very commonplace about how culture and art can be an economic lever for regeneration of cities and everything. 
at the end of all of this, and think something I was thinking about on the way up um, to London this morning, was how we do need to have much more rigorous investigation, examination of the economics of art and how so much of the economics of art is obscured because we really don't have access to what's going on in a vast sector, the, the commercial galleries, the, the, the actual dealings of the auction houses and collectors and, and so on and so forth, um, to try to, to understand how that's going to work, um, but also that there, there needs to be some sense in which we have to get away from from this kind of market idea to begin with, because I'm sure there are a lot of artists who are outside of it. Well, not most probably. <laughs> yeah, those who, who have any economic activity at all, um, where they figure in all of this. There is, though, a difference, isn't there, yeah. between being outside of it by default and, in a way, actively being outside well, of it. Well, even by decision as opposed yeah. to just... <clears throat> well, some people are outside of it because they're trying to get in, in it and it's not Can't. working. Yes. Other yeah. people are sort of outside of it, you know, through a um, aesthetic, ideological or, or political yep. decision. But in fact, that's also become problematized as well, in as much as because the, under, the underlying sort of ideology for, to allow those sorts of positions to develop in a way that's not quixotic have become sort of entirely problematized and or paralyzed in the sort of the general collapse of the narratives of the 20th, 20th, you know, and the collapse of the market is only part of it. I mean, before we came on air, we were talking about the collapse of the left vote in the recent elections. There are various forms of collapses. Yep. Uh, not to want to sound apocalyptic. I mean, it, it's not going to be, you know, the earth opening up and the, uh, and the dead returning. But it's, um, there is this sort of extraordinarily... There's a, there's a crisis of general confidence. There's a crisis of oppositional confidence as well as establishment confidence. Uh, this is always being usually caricatured or sketched in as somehow the establishment's cracking and wobbling, and therefore the virtuous standard bearers of free um, cultural aesthetic should all be cheering. They should well, all yes, be cheering. Will, will, will rise. But in fact, I'm not quite sure where they're going to put their lever. It seems well, hard to find yeah, it anywhere no, for the know, I'm, I'm, I'm really <clears throat> not interested in, in, in kind of applauding the collapse of any economic mm. system that's so integrated and, and has, has ramifications and consequences for many, mm. many people. Which I we mean, wouldn't even know what they were going to be, some of them. Yeah, mm. I mean, this, this, is, this has been one of the great um, transformations in art and culture over the past 30, 40 years, how it has actually integrated itself into the what people call the real economy, but it's all the it's all the real economy, mm. how it has created a presence, and and that means um, when a gallery closes, it's not just the dealer, who's out on a limb, the people who they work for, the people in the neighborhood who service the people they work for, and again the artists who'll never get an mm. opportunity to show in that kind of situation, um, that's. I don't want to kind of celebrate the misfortune of people because, I mean, we wouldn't sit here and, and say it's a good thing that the auto workers in Britain are make, being made redundant because they don't know how to make proper automobiles. They don't know how to make anything that anybody wants or that's good for the environment. Um, you know, well, let's have an auto industry that is technologically uh, advanced, ecologically sound. Um, it seems that all of these crises, as far as capitalism is concerned, are testing beds 
for accommodation and transformation and adaptation. Uh, the one thing that I find is frustrating, which is why I want to get away from the art market that we see, is because that simply goes down and then goes up again. It's, it's one of the things that almost remains continually in view and has become a kind of a horizon for most people when they think of art. Now, I, I'll, I'll go out on a limb here and, and suggest that Richard and I can be uh, criticized very deeply for wanting to create an idea of value that has nothing to do with wealth. Yeah, um, and, 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 yes. and yeah. this in yeah. a way comes back to I think what I was trying to suggest there that the criteria that have underpinned <coughs> an extraordinary amount of uh, aesthetic and uh, cultural production say from about 1890 uh, which was essentially teleological yeah, they're, they're, in a way there was a better future coming and we were going to be part of it either through a revolution of the senses or a revolution of society or both or whatever and that's run out of steam so we are reduced in many ways to either making echoes and analogues of what used to be seen as a radical practice, which then immediately becomes sort of commodified and becomes the branding of, of radicality. Da, 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 da. Uh, so yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, and that, that uh, criticism of our position, I think, does reflect a wider situation. In the, you know, if, if we are trying to move the world, where the hell do we put the fulcrum? You know, the, where is that position? Now, and I don't think any, um, any of us really, really know. What for me has been very distressing about the, uh, the boom, if I can just sort of do, is the way that in fact art had such a bad boom, even though it had a great boom. Uh, it managed to show very little criticality. It, it sort of just rolled over and sort of went into sort of said, take me, baby, take me. Uh, it's sort of, it's <laughs> not been a dignified thing to watch. Um, Certainly in some well-publicised areas. I mean, oh, there, there are pockets of good stuff. Even those pockets go into, say, the cartoon, which nobody on the radio can see here. I mean, this, the, the pockets need a financial base as well. And they, uh, so either they've been yes, yes. sort of, or even a technological base. You know, so some of the pockets have been within media art. That became institutionalised via the academies at the rate of speed of, speed of light. You know, you had sort of people setting up hacker networks with them about two and a half years later. They're all professors somewhere, somewhere in Antwerp, roughly. Because <laughs> people want to learn how to hack <laughs> yes, yes. properly. Yeah. Um, no, it's interesting you mentioned yeah. universities mm. in some way because you, you did, in your piece, Michael, didn't you? There was, a, I think, a mention of, you know, should, should research be, a, for instance, a funded research by universities part of a way in which an artist thinks well, of... I make my living as a, as a, as a, well, you wouldn't, a I, member of the academy. Uh, and um, I think they are, they are trying to deal with things in a very interesting way. The, I guess the standard of and poor's of the academic world is, is called the research assessment exercise. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing about art in the academy is that it generally doesn't get seen anywhere else. No, no. To its detriment, because if it was able to um, be put in a position to sustain critical discourse outside of the academy, something interesting might happen. But now we've got a series of worlds coming up that generally don't meet or communicate with each other. And yeah. that's a problem. I don't want to say that there's something desperately um, wrong, absolutely, about art in the academy. Just the same, I wouldn't say the, the same would be true of art that was done in the public realm or through arts councils, whatever. Um, but the fact that there is no communication between them it is become, a very difficult problem. It is, it is desperately, if not wrong, it is at least desperately surreal. 
I mean, I love the situation where people now are doing PhDs in studio practice, say, whereby you can go into an art school, you can do da 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 da, and you're suddenly launched on a trajectory that will sort of, you can now, it's now very, very difficult to get job even possibly even as a studio assistant without a, a PhD MA you know, <laughs> with more letters after your name than a piano teacher used to have and this is generating its own separated world because hardly any of those artists like I just said have an engagement perhaps in say the commercial world and um, and the links between say practicing artists and yeah. uh, the universities have been eroded over the last 30 or 40 years when it used to be say in the 70s where if you were working outside of the market you went up into Newcastle Polytechnic or Leicester Polytechnic and sort of showed your slides of you standing in the bottle uh, in the bucket of porridge, um, sort of undermining capitalism to students, and that would pay your electricity bills for the next sort of for your studio few few weeks to make more porridge. And that was an incredibly useful and worthwhile thing. You know, you know the, the the way that the polytechnics and the art schools did help support. I mean, there were problems with it. Uh, but now what's happened is that they've become more isolated because those budgets for the visiting artists have sort of collapsed. Uh, the artists who are PhD grade one within studio practice, say, w within the universities, on the whole, don't have a lot of link Outside. with the artists who have a studio in Hackney. Or whatever, you know. It's would you? I mean, any disagreement here, well, or is that? I'm, I'm <laughs> no, because I, actually, well, I, 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 sta I stand here accused because I, I uh, supervise a number of these practice-led PhDs, mm. and all. and um, the issue is what's the relationship between professional practice and quit and critical reflection? Mm. Um, as if you didn't think there was enough critical discourse in the art world to begin with. Um, I think the the answer is that. It's not seen as a normal place of research or contemplation that will then lead to something else outside. It mm. just, there's a disconnect between that. But uh, somebody will figure out a way to bridge those worlds because increasingly the, these kinds of extra degrees, higher degrees, um, are seen by some people as a way to actually do something that they can't do anywhere else. Yeah. And it's, quite that it's quite interesting what th that, that you make that, um, yeah. the thing about trying to link the two, both of you, because um, I, I mean, I did go to, mm. an, did an MA myself, which was a part-time course where you had to have a studio outside and then you would attend every, every other week for two nights and basically you had to, you were a student, but you had to have a job or have a studio outside. And there was, there was an attempt to have a course that did cross over, but the, most of those courses have gone now. And, and it's like the university has gone back into itself again. That was in the 80s, I'm talking about. Yeah. There, there is this We're very near time. I've got to be uh, oh, okay. a little bit yeah. ruthless. I'm very sorry. We, we've, we are running out of time. Um, I just want to say, because we have a couple of minutes, Richard Grayson's exhibition, The Golden Space City of God, is at Matt's Gallery in London until June the 28th. And Michael Corris's latest book is a monograph of Ad Reinhardt, published by Reaction Books, and it's out now. The next issue of Art Monthly is out on July the 1st, and the next episode of Art Monthly is on residence in July, on July the 10th. This programme is out now, as you can hear. Thank you ever so much. Thank you, Michael, and thank you, Richard. I'm sorry to cut you off, guys. Thank you.